Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about the four reasons why nobody's buying your stuff. <laughs> Ooh, why isn't your stuff selling? Uh, right? So this was yeah. this is a series of email or based on a series of emails that I wrote recently that came from a really fun conversation I had with an online buddy who um, who is one of my favorite someone who's really smart and we don't agree on everything. So it's always fun to explore the disconnects between our points of view or the language we're using. And a lot of times it gets kind of semantic, but it can uncover something fun, which in this case, it really did uncover for me. So, you know, I just want to sidebar that for a second. I think it's really great when we have people like that in our business and personal lives. It's like you agree on a lot of stuff, but there's a few things where you just don't. And I think that's where the learning, the best learning comes sometimes. Right, right. It's yeah. like, ooh, here's, an, here's a locked door. Yeah. I wonder what's behind yeah. this locked door. Like th- there's something in here for sure. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and and it's not to too much backstory, but we've, we've kind of gone around this particular topic in the past and never come to a resolution. So I feel like progress was made this time. Um, and what do I mean by that? So the general back and forth was my feeling is that niching down, broadly speaking, is a good thing to do for a business, especially if you're a small business in terms of headcount, you're a soloist or a small firm. And, and his point of view is that, um, that lots of niche markets are unprofitable that you cannot make a profit. You can't build a really strong door. Not not talking about Apple, but just you can't build a strong, durable business, like a one or two person business on most niche markets. In, in No, see, he wouldn't have said that. He would have said most niches. And uh, okay, distinction. Right? Distinction. Yeah. So, so, and I'm, I'm not going to put words in his mouth if you're listening, Justin, but, but just to have the conversation, um, it felt, it, my take on it was, he and perhaps the people who talk about this, the make money online people, are when they say niche, they're talking about a very small segment of the population, which is one way to think about it. It's not a wrong definition of the term, I wouldn't say. And and in that case, I would agree that you could come up with segments of the population that are very difficult to build a business on top of. It, okay, I'm going to leave that there for a second. But when I would when I say niche. I am speaking in an unclear way. What I mean is a niche market. And if you have a market, there are buyers and sellers there. It's not just a segment of the population that exists, like people who like tangerines. So or that's not even a great one because there's a market, so they buy tangerines. But <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but it has know, to have a buyer and a seller. Right. So like yeah. his his example was, you know, there's there's like this one Jawa in the original Star Wars that only shows up for one second on screen and never again. And he's like, I, I don't think you could build a business on top of the people who think that Jawa is cool. And I was like, oh, and then I, that's when I started to see like, oh, he's talking about a segment of the population. I'm talking about a market, a very like a really small market. When Seth Godin says minimum viable audience, he's talking about a small market of uh, it, not just a segment of the population who has some sort of psychographic uh, similarity with each other. So the and the important difference is that a market is a place, virtual or otherwise, where buyers and sellers regularly show up to transact, to, to trade goods and services. So it's like by definition, 
there are buyers in a market, no matter how big or small it is. Yeah. It's commerce is taking place. Commerce is taking place. So that to me is a really, I think, an important distinction because a lot of people just say niche down, niche down, including me. (laughs) We both said it. (laughs) Yeah, a million times without pointing out that it's like, well, we're not talking about people who are like kind of into that one Jawa. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the, the thousand true fans, Kevin Kelly article came up and all, all of these really common conversations around this space. So, uh, so this is a great opportunity to clarify, I think specifically what we mean when we're talking about a niche or niche market. And if you take, if you agree with the definition that I just gave for a market is buyers and sellers actively, you know, showing up to like a farmer's market's a great example. Farmers show up, farmers show mm-hmm. up to sell produce people show up to buy produce. It's at a particular place in time and people show up there and they do business. Uh, if the people stopped showing up, the farmers would stop showing up. If the buyers stopped showing up, the sellers would stop showing up. So there would be no market. So the, if you think of the market as something that exists outside of the the mind of any buyer or seller, it's the combination of things. So you can see that it's there, mm-hmm. right? You can You can see that people are buying software development services. You can see that people are buying podcast hosting plans or accounts with a podcast host. Like you can mm-hmm. see that it's happening. So there is a market. So in in my definition of a niche market, at least in this context, it's it always can be profitable or there there would be no sellers. Yeah, it wouldn't exist if it there wasn't exist. an opportunity for profit, which is not the same as saying that you can make a profit in it. I mean, it, exactly. you have to do a little bit more work to figure that out. But if there is commerce, there's the opportunity to make a profit. Mm-hmm. Right. So, okay. So why then might you, what, what could be the reasons if you show up, you're in an active market, you know, there's mm-hmm. demand, right? You know that you could serve the, the needs of the buyers with your existing products and services, but no one's buying from you or no one's, you're not getting any leads. No one's approaching. You're not getting any activity. What could be going on? And so this was a, <laughs> This was a, uh, an email that spun out of this conversation that I had uh, with Justin. It was, it, so, it was, so this is a, me, is a new way for me to articulate this. So things may change in the future, but I'm feeling pretty comfortable with it. So I came up, there's probably a dozen reasons why people might not buy. I think Sean D'Souza would say there are seven. Uh, but I came up with four that seemed like that were the most obvious to me. And they were awareness, recognition, trust, and value. So if you imagine, if you imagine it in a kind of linear progression, where first you show up in a market and the buyers as a seller and the buyers just not aware of you. They just don't see you. They're just not, not aware of your offering. So that is a particular kind of problem and there are particular kinds of solutions to that. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm just going to run down these real quick and then we can, or do you want to do, let's do them actually one yeah, by one. Yeah, let's go through them. You okay. know, cause the, the first thing I thought of when you were saying, you know, awareness is, well, yeah, that's where authority building comes in just as one example. Right. But if right. nobody knows you exist, there is no surprise that your stuff isn't selling. Right. But my website's on the internet, Rochelle. They <laughs> well, should know. Say no more. <laughs> <laughs> well, your job is done. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, this one is sort of, I guess, patently obvious that if you know people don't buy stuff they don't know exists. So they need to know it exists. They need to know that you exist. Uh, your business and your offerings exist. And... Uh, and there are ways to do that, like, you know, like doing a podcast, mm-hmm. being active on social media, being having a mailing list, linking to your mailing list, you know, like 
I would summarize the awareness creation activities as like showing up in the market and being helpful, you know, at, at scale for free if possible, you know, to the extent that you can yeah. do that. Yeah. And when you first start, it might be very one-to-one, you know, mm-hmm. let's say you just left your corporate job and the first place you start is with everybody, you know, mm-hmm. and you tell them what it is that you're doing. And so you start to get, you know, the first part of your work. But once you've been successful at that, then it's the scale. Then you're looking to scale. How can I do this without having to talk to each potential person that might join my sphere of influence, not even become a client, but might just kind of stay on the periphery and be aware of what I'm doing and what I'm offering. Yep. Yeah. And there's, you know, a list of things you could do like answer bombing or networking events or going on other people's podcasts, speaking at conferences, a whole, there's a bunch of things Mm -hmm. you could do to increase awareness. You could get a trade show booth. Uh, I feel like this one's something we talk about kind of a lot just because of the nature of this show. So yeah. I don't know if we need to go too deep on it. But yes, people need to be aware that you, your business, your your products and services, they need to be aware that they exist. Like, like oh, that's a thing. Okay. The next stage I called recognition. And that's where they are aware of uh, your offering, but they don't recognize it as a solution to their problem. And this is a, I think this is a sticking point with the majority of people that I work with where they, they have, they're like, they're talking about features and the, the, the sell, you know, and the buyers are looking for benefits. Mm -hmm. So they're speaking the wrong language. So you've got, you've got buyers and sellers. The buyers have a need. There's a demand. They showed up to buy something uh, to solve a problem. And if you show up and you're talking about your features, your deliverables, um, and those sorts of things, like your inputs, then it's likely, or it's, it's, it's pretty common, I'll say it that way, it's very common that the buyers will not recognize that the inputs that you are selling or talking about coming to the market with are solutions to the, the pains they're experiencing. Because they're not, <laughs> right? A feature is not a solution. Right, right. So let's, so the example I give is like, you want to talk about how fast you can get rid of their migraine, not the ingredients in the medication. So if you show up and just talk about the ingredients in your pill, no one's going to think they need that. It's going yeah. to be a big leap. The The buyer would need to know a lot about stuff they probably don't know anything or don't or and don't want to know about. It's boring. It's boring. I don't want to hear about your 20 step process or your, you know, these 10 drug ingredients I can't pronounce. Right. Or how smart your team is and their backgrounds. And Mm -hmm. no, I want to know how quickly and cheaply you can solve my problem or or, and reliably or some combination of those three things. Yeah. So this is often the problem when I work with someone who gets a lot of repeat business, but it's all referrals and word of mouth and they can't get an inbound lead to save their lives. So to me, when there's somebody's getting a lot of repeat business, their price is right. They're delivering more value than 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 they're capturing, and they're doing something right. And the client recognizes something of value, but it's not the thing the seller thinks they're selling. So, just in an hourly yes. model, right? Like the yeah. seller thinks yeah. they're selling software development by the hour, but the buyer isn't buying that. The buyer is getting like increasing MRR, decreased churn, something like that, mm-hmm. some kind of business outcome. And the business outcome that they're getting from this extended relationship is greater than than what it costs. And they would probably happily 
pay in a different way or they would you know maybe do a different kind of pricing model and it would be fine as long as the overall amount of money that they paid wasn't more than it was worth mm-hmm. so so what happened one of the things with hourly is it can create this situation where you don't understand what kind of value you're creating it just happens that you sort of fell into a situation where you're delivering more value than you're charging for so in a lot of times it will be because not all the time but a lot of times it will be because your buyer is actually pretty savvy about what it is that you do and just recognized in you like like did connect the dots read the ingredients and was like oh right. this is this is the medication i want because they were familiar with that maybe they used to be somebody like you and now they're maybe running a sas or something and they need a coder and 50 bucks an hour all day yeah yeah as many hours as you can give me well, it's also possible that the market is more, I'm going to use the word mature, but I'm not sure that's the right word. In other words, the market is more known. So everybody knows that they need software development to improve their their site and their sales. Like everybody knows that. So who do you think is going to get you there faster? Hmm. Even if the person who's going to do it quotes you an hourly rate and they're not they're not glomming onto the bigger picture. If you've got a sophisticated client, that's why I'm thinking a more mature marketplace or right. a sophisticated client, they're yeah. going to know more and it's easier to sell to them. This is interesting. I hadn't thought of this, but you're right. The whole market could be the buy all of the buyers could be sophisticated and that yeah. actually that would that I don't like that actually. A, I know. <laughs> Because it makes me feel like the the sellers are all going to get commoditized because the buyers are so sophisticated. Well, it's I've seen this happen with a, a couple of small firms where they were kind of the market leader for mm-hmm. two or three or four years. And then other small like boutique size firms started to realize, oh, that's a model we could follow too. And then all of a sudden, it's a little harder to get assignments. It's a little (laughs) harder to get the top end dollar wise. It's a little harder if you're hiring people to find the right people because they have multiple options. It's it's kind of on the road to commoditization, even if it doesn't go that far. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Um, Cool. Okay. So we're this is stage two. So recognition. So they're aware of their offering, but they didn't recognize it as a solution to the problem. But let's say you start talking about benefits and outcomes, business outcomes. And, and your buyers are like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what we're looking for. You know, you start, you, you put a big label on the front of your bottle that says fast migraine relief. They're like, yes, <laughs> that is what I need. That is, that is mm-hmm. what I'm here for. And, and, you know, you've still got the, the small print on the back with all the ingredients, but that's not the important part. The important part is to get their attention in the aisle of the CVS and say, yes, I have, I've got a migraine. I'm going to try this. So you've got recognition. So what's the next thing that happens especially in a service situation, product two, but especially in a service uh, model, is trust. So I've got this as number three. Uh, and what I mean by that is they do recognize your offering as a solution to their problem, but they don't find your claims credible. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, like as soon as this pill touches your tongue, your migraine will disappear. It's like, mm-hmm. ah, really? You know, washboard mm-hmm. abs in 30 minutes. You know, it's just like yeah. not credible. You can't believe it. It's incredible. The opposite of credible. So, you know, and this, this has a different solution to, from the other two problems, right? So if your offer sounds too good to be true, it's going to, your buyers just aren't going to believe it. They're not going to buy from you because people don't buy from people they don't trust. So when you offer product or service to the target market, 
you don't want to be hyperbolic and overstate it. You want to be realistic and making promises that you're pretty sure you can keep. You, you're really confident that you can keep this promise. If the right buyer buys from you, you can keep whatever promise you're making, whatever the promise of the offer is. So, I mean, again, there's probably a million factors here, but it could just be the magnitude of the promise. Like it's just what you're promising is just not believable to the buyers in this particular market. Or it could be that the the type of solution that you are providing is just too new. It's too novel. The it, it's not the it's not the regular way that they solve this problem. So normally they solve it by hiring more people, and you're showing up with um, you know a chat bot or something, and they're like not ready to accept that as a solution to the problem. Uh, it could be that it, it you know of course always there's the clarity of your language could be it just could be too hazy, too soggy for them to connect the dots. Um, yeah, and there's other things on their side, like how much pain are they in? How urgent is it? What's the cost of doing nothing, you know, for them? And the price. The, the other thing here too, though, is that I think it's possible if you're in our audience that you're going, well, this wouldn't happen to me because I'm not a hypester. I'm the opposite. I'm like really careful about making these claims. And the thing is, it it's kind of goes to brand. People make a decision based on who you are, how you speak about their problems and your solution. And so sometimes it's just that there's a disconnect. It's not that you're out there hustling and sounding like a carny barker, <laughs> but just that there's a disconnect in the eyes of your ideal client when they look at your stuff, whether that's your LinkedIn page or your website or a sales page. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Uh, there's one comment I want to make about the price that's sometimes counterintuitive. Uh, if you are making a promise of a particular size and people, they're like, believe it. It's, I, I believe that this person can deliver these kinds of outcomes for whatever reason. It's maybe the way that you show up in the market, like you said, or testimonials mm -hmm. from people that seem like them. Uh, but here's one for you. If your price is too low, they're mm -hmm. going to be like, whoa, this is, this can't be right. It yep. can't be this cheap. It yep. won't work for this little amount of money, yeah. Uh, which is an interesting one. It can be too high, of course, but that's actually the next. That's the next point. But if it's too low, that can create distrust. Be like it. It's just too good to be true. Like any, you just want to yeah. stay away from that reaction of this is too good to be true. And going back to brand again, their prices is, is tied to that. You know, if you've created this this perception in the eyes of your clients that you are the high end solution. And for whatever reasons, and 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 you can let's say your your value pricing that. So the last thing you want to do is come in as the lowball bidder. It, right. it creates dissonance in the in the minds of your buyers. Right. Yeah, you can definitely come in too low. Okay. Absolutely. So that is well. Okay. It, it, resolving this, I think, looks like uh, I, I'm a slow and steady, you know, brick by brick, chop water. At chop water, chop wood, carry water type of <laughs> <laughs> That's very Mr. Miyagi, I want to see the chop water. I want to see the chop water one. Yeah, I'm like a Buddhist monk over here. Um, so, yes, so that means showing up a lot every day, maybe uh, building the trust. I mean, it's it's very, it's it's harder to do at scale than it is to do in person, but it's not really different. You know, you just make promises and keep them every day. And, mm -hmm. and if you do that for long enough, People are going to be like, oh, this is a person who keeps their promises. They don't shoot their mouth off. They don't, you know, make 
claims that they, you know, they don't write checks with their mouth that their body can't keep, so forth. So, mm-hmm. uh, so you know, just to 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 you know, sort of beat a dead horse, the solution to the trust issue is different than the solution to the recognition issue, and it's different to the solution to the awareness issue. They're all different problems to right. solve. Um, but but on to the next one, which is value. So this one is sort of my bread and butter on ditching hourly and on my mailing list. I mean, I talk about all these things, but but this is the main one, I suppose, the cent- a very central one, which is that they are aware of you. They recognize that you've got a solution to their problem. They trust that you can deliver the outcome that they want, but your price costs more than it is higher. Your solution costs more than it's worth to them to solve it. Mm-hmm. So this this is almost so obvious in a sense. It's not worth. It's almost like not worth saying, but people aren't going to spend more to solve a problem than the, it's worth. And how much it is worth to solve a problem is different from Alice to Bob to Carol. You know, they might all have the same problem, but they're all different people and are different businesses. And it's, and the problem is going to be, they're all going to have different risk tolerance and urgency and uh, fear of what would happen if it blew up in their faces. They're all different. Yeah. Cause that's what, when you were saying that, what, what I was thinking is this, that maybe part of, um, the price in quotes is what they have to do to get oh, yeah. the outcome. So like mm-hmm. if you're like a big change consultant and you're going to turn the organization upside down for 18 months, they've got to be really sure that that outcome is going to be worth the disruption. A hundred percent. Yeah. The, 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 the investment on their, from their side is not just money usually. Yeah. There's it's skin. Also <laughs> yeah, they've got skin in the game. They're, they or their employees are probably going to be burning hours on it. Uh, there there could be all sorts of churn created. In your example, it could have employee churn, which creates its own mm-hmm. added yep. cost. So the whole the whole overall investment needs to be worth it, worth it yeah. to this particular buyer. It needs to be worth it to Alice. And if it's not, it doesn't mean it's not worth that much to anybody. There, you know, Bob, it might be worth that much right. to Bob. So, you know this is more art than science, but there's a almost a physics level law that somebody is not going to spend more than it's worth. So yeah, what, why would they? Right. So what do you do in that case? So there's at least two things you can do, but the ones that jump to mind are find people who have a bigger version of the same problem, which probably looks like a larger buyer in terms of like buying power or budget or headcount or whatever, however you want to measure it. But there will be people in the market that are small fish and there'll be people in the market that are bigger fish. So if you're talking to a lot of small fish and it's and it's just not worth the price the price that you feel you need to charge, then if you look for bigger fish, you might find that it's worth way more to them because they've got a different situation they're dealing with on their end. So that's one thing. Another thing could be that the market is telling you that the that the demand for the solution is or that what what the solution is worth to them is worth less than you thought. And the way that you wanted to solve their problem was too labor intensive to lower your price mm. to, to a point where it's worth it to them. So the market is telling you, you need, it's time for innovation. It's time to, for you to innovate on your products and services to find a more clever way to solve this problem for them in a way that's that would make it affordable. So you could set a price 
that's above your cost floor so you can make a profit and it's below what it's worth to them so they can make a profit. So you basically split the profit by this sort of arbitrage of the, between this new solution, this new way of solving the problem more cheaply for you. And yeah, and, and so it could be that you're like, wow, so someone come to me like, ah, nobody, you know, this niche market, uh, are they're all price buyers. They all, they're all cheap. They don't want to pay for high-end software development. And my reaction to that is like, is anybody, does anybody have problems in this market that you can solve? Are they actively looking for solutions to problems that you can solve? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, come up with a, a way to solve their problem that's cheaper for you to deliver, which might, instead of building the thing for them, could look like training their team or introducing them to uh, an offshore team and perhaps overseeing a project or not. Or it could be just doing the architecture piece and uh, and letting somebody else build it. Come up with yeah, different... Or some form of leverage. Yeah, right. Get, create a workshop, a video course or something, or write a book. You know, come up with some other way to, to address the demand at a price that's affordable to them and seems reasonable and, uh, uh, you know, lower than what it's worth to them, lower than the value, but that is also worth it to you. So the problem with this is... So, you know, somebody's listening to our advice and they find a niche market and they're able to t tick the boxes on one, two, and three pretty quickly. They can pretty quickly get awareness because the market's small. They can pretty quickly get recognition that what you're offering is a solution. They can pretty quickly build trust. But then it's like, but I want to sell this thing that I've always sold, right? So now all of a sudden you've mm -hmm. got a pipeline. You never had a pipeline before. You just had word of mouth occasionally. And now you've got a pipeline but no one can afford the old inefficient way that you used to solve the problem. Yeah. So come up with a new way. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe instead of charging $50,000, you charge $5,000 and you have more clients or you, you, the way that you've leveraged that, that, that $5,000 is repeatable without very much more effort from you. Right. Yeah. It's the business model. Mm -hmm. Right. And this could be this, you know, in, innovation is messy and hard and, uh, and it's sort of change. It's like change. So, so you might be resistant to doing it, but it's the, it's, it's the reason why I can confidently say that you can be profitable in any niche market or the market wouldn't be there. But you, but if you yeah. want, if you want to get really hyper-specific about the niche market that you're going after, it might very well be that you have to be more flexible in what your offerings look like, what your product ladder looks like. It doesn't mean that you can just show up with what you normally do and expect everybody in this new market to be like able to afford it, let's say. Yeah, and there's but there's another layer to this, which is working in your genius zone. So and that might cause you to change your niche market versus changing your offerings. Oh yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean that's what that's what's so interesting about this and why there's so many possible ways to slice and dice this. So if you're you're at the point where you're you have this mismatch on value and you say, yeah, but I don't want to teach a bunch of people how to do this. Right. I want to work with this with this level of person. Okay, then you need an adjustment in, in the your target market. That could very well be right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it probably you probably would not get this far down the gauntlet of of these gates that you need to go through. You probably wouldn't get this far without recognizing that that you're trying to sell a Tesla at a farmer's market. It's like no one's here to buy that. You know what I mean? 
So you probably would have found out at a previous level, probably the recognition level or maybe the trust level, that no one no one cares about this particular solution to their problem. So I feel like you would probably be able to make this decision about whether or not you need to modify, whether or not you need to change or you need to find a different market. You think you'd make the decision earlier in this four-step process. Well, probably unless you were, it was your first time, you know, it was your first rodeo. Because most people that have been doing this for a while have figured out what they like, what they don't like, and they're testing. Do I do I want to do this? Do I want to make this claim? You know, they're experimenting. When you're first starting out, you might not be as savvy and you might get further down. And this hmm. is my off the cuff thinking about that. Yeah. The, the, I think I agree with that. The, the thing that, so I'm, I'm trying to come up with words to describe an experience that I've had repeatedly with with at least with people I, I talk to, mostly software developers, where they it's really a packaging issue more than an expertise issue where they can just package their expertise in a different way that's more higher leverage mm-hmm. that would allow them to be very profitable in this particular market. It Doing that, though, can and often, I would say, usually does change the nature of your day-to-day running of your business. So it'll, it would change the job part of your business, the job that you do. So, mm-hmm. would, so in other words, instead of, um, just for an example, instead of coding for a client, you might not code anymore. You might be still using all of the expertise that you built up as a coder, but you just might not be coding anymore. Mm-hmm. And like th- that is like, a, that can be a tough identity switch for some people who just love coding. And they're like, well, wait a second. I, I just want to code. I love coding. I don't want to teach. I don't want to review pull requests. I don't want to build a SaaS. I don't want to, you know, use this expertise in some other way. I don't want to write a book. You know, I just want to code, code, code. Then it's like, okay, well, come back in 10 years when you're sick of coding. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a specific business model. And, and you could substitute the word code there for, uh, I just want to do brand work i just want to do write. Yeah. design logos i just yeah i just want to write yeah mm-hmm. it's it's that sort of artisan you know craftsman craftsperson right um look and yeah and and you can absolutely have a craft like career and it just depends on what you want i mean mm-hmm. you can create a business like that you you probably still have to do some kind of selling around that you've got to you know figure out how to keep the pipeline full yeah you still got a business to run yeah, but you know, aside from that, you can spend a lot of time on your craft. And then mm. other people say, "Okay, I've learned what I what I'm interested in about this craft. Now what I want to do is I want to step it up to another level. Now I want to talk about how organizations can strategically use this craft to do X, whatever X is, grow sales, um, keep people, uh, reduce costs, all of those things. So you start to just, you know, kind of move up the the food chain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, like for, I didn't, I wasn't really planning to bring up the whole idea of like how to pick a niche market, but that does, it feels like that's where we're ending up, which is like, okay, well, what if I get to the end here? Or, or what if I lose three to six months investigating uh, a target market and it turns out that I don't want to serve the demand in the way that the buyers want it. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be a drag to find that yeah. out. So yeah. if you, I would say, I guess, if I were 
if I didn't want to change, if I didn't want to innovate in what I was, how I was packaging what I was offering. So let's, let's just stick with the developer. I just want to write Rails apps. I want to build Rails apps. All right. So that what I would do is look for a place where I would look for a niche market. I'd still look for a niche market that was hiring Rails developers, but where the value was like really high. But even mm-hmm. as I'm saying this, it's like, it's just going to be commoditized. So you're still going to have to do all of the, you're still going to have to do something to differentiate yourself, but you, but you could certainly niche down on a market that was where it would be much easier for you to create awareness, recognition, and trust with a smaller group of people who for some reason have a very high demand, like a a high willingness to pay. Oh, I can think of an example, actually. I'm glad you can. (laughs) I can't. (laughs) Well, this was years ago, but I was doing consulting work for an airline and I can't remember the name of the software, but there was some special software in airlines and I think certain big banks used it. Sabre. Uh, like that. But Sabre's not a language. This was a language. It's a programming language Cobol. that... Uh, uh, no, it wasn't. Because I, I know I know what COBOL is. Oh, okay. Sorry. Do it. But, sorry, sorry. So it was like Apollo and Sabre at the time were the two big systems. And they needed a special kind of programmer. And they would pay a fortune for these people. Now, those were as employees. Now, I'm assuming they also had contractual arrangements. But what I remembered about it was I kept thinking... Why would anybody want to do this? It's a dying language, right? Nobody's nobody is using it for anything new. I don't know if that switched, but there were and I met a few of them in the course of the project. There were these people and they were it was funny, they were not young. Yeah. And they weren't it's not that they were old, but they weren't like in their 20s. And so and they they made this conscious decision to focus on this thing because they loved it so much. Mm. But at the end of the day, like how long were they going to be able to make a career out of this? For all I know, that language has gone poof. And if you said it, I might remember it, but I just I, I it's it's gone from my my memory banks. No, I don't know. Um, but th- that would be an example or somebody who worked on um, messaging software back when we had pagers or not software, but somebody who worked on pager technology. Like, okay, how long are you going to do that? And eventually it disappears. Yeah, it's such a scary... uh, I feel like that path where they just want to do the the hands work, it doesn't really fit the authority model very well. No. it, it It looks like business models that don't go in that direction. It looks like scaling hands by hiring. It looks like... Uh, full-time employment um, yeah. it looks like maybe maybe there's a consult no well the consulting's not what they want to do they want to code so it, yeah it feels like very limiting as a if to run a business mm-hmm. like that unless you do go that sort of agency or virtual agency model where you just hi- you know you try and corral all of the i know you said it wasn't COBOL, but like you just get all the COBOL developers and you start an agency that just or at least has a, a branch that where you've roped in all of the COBOL developers and then yep. you've kind of got everybody over a barrel. Maybe yeah. uh, at any rate, you know, this, I mean, maybe we do a follow-up episode on like trying to, trying to model these four things and, and maybe add to this list and, and coming up with a framework that would help you test a market without, you know, a cheap test, not an expensive test to find out where the demand is and how you could possibly serve the demand in a way that was profitable for you and them and made your, made you happy. So that's that's a pretty small needle to yeah. thread, but 
Yeah, well, it's listening tours can be good for some, if not all of these things, maybe not all. But um, yeah, it's it's just really cool when you can sit down with somebody that you believe is right smack dab in your target market and mm-hmm. figure out like where are the holes and get them to actually tell you that it's it's priceless. Mm-hmm. So let's maybe let's wrap it up by I don't think we I think we talked about only this only before the show. Um but even if we did mention at the beginning, let's let's wrap up on the idea of creating a market or creating demand and what your thoughts are about about that. Mm. Well, <laughs> d- demand is I have one simple rule when it comes to demand and soloists is you want to do something that is already in demand. You do not want to have to create it because it can take years. It isn't always successful. It is stressful. It is uh, low paid. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's beating your head against the wall. So the idea is to find a market, i.e. a place where there is already commerce and figure out how to fit yourself into that market. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Position yourself, really. Yes, precisely. I think the, I think... This is another one of those things that I probably glossed over a million times with just sloppy language. Uh, but cre- I think creating demand, I, I don't think you can create demand. Well, this is not not true. Not true. Disney creates mm. demand. <laughs> Disney creates demand. Great marketers create demand. But for a soloist who probably doesn't have a million dollar or billion dollar marketing budget uh, in, a, in a movie studio... Um, probably the the creating demand piece probably looks more like connecting the dots between a solution that you can provide or a problem you can solve and a demand for that for that like the demand mm-hmm. ideally if you want to play on easy mode you find a demand that exists and is underserved by the current solutions and you come up with a way to solve that that's 10 times cheaper or something, or that's 10 times better in some way mm-hmm. that, that's meaningful to the buyers and differentiate yourself as like the go-to for whatever, you know, for, for that solution in a way that's meaningfully different from the alternatives. It's, it, and that might feel like creating demand because all of a sudden you, or maybe not all of a sudden, but you'll, <laughs> you'll slowly be getting more inbound. Yeah. And it feels it's like magic. Like, it feels like, yeah, it feels like you created demand, but really what happened was there was a demand. You tapped into it by connecting the yes. dots between something they yes. already wanted and some way that you can provide it. So that I think, you know, I think in software, that's like kind of what people are talking about with product market fit. Um, yeah, or jobs to be done or whatever. It's like it's like you find out what what job are they hiring for, air quotes, from the product space or or like what what are p- people really, what solution, what value are people getting out of this solution? What benefits are they getting out of it? And so I guess it's semantics, but it's like the demand is there and you're just connecting the dots. You're kind of like opening up the floodgates. Yeah. So it feels like you created it, but really you just pointed it an existing thing at yourself. And some innovation in a in a market that is a proven market that they have needs and they have buyers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and then even so so don't don't strictly speaking, creating demand is probably playing on hard mode, trying to create demand for something novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, read Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore for that and for more on that. Um, but then there's this larger notion of trying to create a market which isn't even like the market doesn't exist. No buyers and sellers are transacting. 
that's why I like the farmer's market analogy so much because, you know, you have you have oranges to sell, you, you go to the farmer's market. If you want to start a farmer's market, right, that's different. That's not that you can't, but everybody knows what one is. Yeah. So you then look for a market that isn't served with a farmer's market and then mm-hmm. you find your buyers and you create it. But in any of those situations, it is a known place to buy and sell. Mm-hmm. And people know what it is. You don't have to show them what an iPhone is. You don't have to explain an iPod. Uh, they still yeah, even exist. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's those, that's, you know, innovation. You can innovate within existing parameters. And I, I don't even like to use the word innovate because it sounds too hard. It's just you're finding that you're, what did you say? Connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. I, I like that analogy, those words. It's mm. finding the connections to things that are already there. Right. Yeah. Finding white space, something that's underserved, but you're not creating demand. You're, it's more like uncovering it an unmet demand or, or an existing tapping demand that everybody it. knows. Yeah. Tapping into it. Right. That's yeah. a good metaphor too. Cool. Okay. Well, this is, this is all relatively new, a, new level of thinking for me personally in terms of trying to articulate these ideas very clearly so i'm sure i'm screwing up a lot of it <laughs> but uh dear listener you you've got my email and you can go ahead and tell us in. yeah go ahead and tell me because i'd love to refine this idea uh, a little a lot more uh it was the the whole the semantics of being more specific about the word niche really have captured my my uh imagination uh, so i'm looking forward to hearing your constructive criticism <laughs> always yes as always yes uh cool should we leave it there for this week i think we should oh i said should again oh, i hate when i say should yes let's leave it there <laughs> <laughs> all right folks that's it for this time hope you join us again next week for the business of authority bye bye